Thank you for joining me today, uh, Rupert Carline, Kura Kiwi Saber. Welcome to News of the Money World, everyone. How are you, Rupert? I'm very well. How are you, Darcy? Excellent. I'm excited to have this chat today because there's a lot going on in the world. Frothy was the word that you used before, and I'm just thinking uh. about well, how do we how do we invest in a bunch of froth when when it's all going down? Because that relationship between risk and return obviously highly correlated when there's risk, there should be return. Sometimes the return comes before the risk, sometimes afterwards. So let's start maybe in, in New Zealand and talk about the sustainability of New Zealand's fiscal situation. Do you want to just give me a bit of a, a lowdown to start with on, on what the situation is? Yeah, so look, it's been interesting over the last couple of weeks, right? Uh, we've seen, as you always do with the new government, you've seen a lot of... Uh, I argue scaremongering, a lot of criticisms of the past and a lot of um, fiscal holes, which actually are no different to what everyone else has done in the past as well. Um, it, so we've seen kind of the announcement of the $200 billion of unfunded labour projects, uh, unfunded roading projects. We've seen announcements of another $50 billion of unfunded infrastructure, all that kind of good stuff, which in hindsight is pretty kind of standard for the stage of an electoral cycle for those commentaries. The real problem is, that they're completely avoiding the main conversations and the real things that kind of Treasury want us to be talking about. Yeah. So Treasury have been pretty vocal on this on the last probably three or four years, where they're saying because of our changing demographic profile and particularly an aging population, that's going to cause massive, massive constraints on the fiscal purse. So two numbers that really stood out. So NZ Super expecting to mm -hmm. grow from 4.5% of GDP up to kind of seven and a half percent of GDP. Healthcare costs, again, expected to go from seven percent of GDP up to 10 percent of GDP. Just as a reference point, New Zealand tax take as a percentage of GDP is about 34, 35 percent. So what we're saying is we're going to have to spend an extra 20 percent more on just these two things, right? And that's mm. even before we've started talking about the massive hole in infrastructure, um, and the massive spending that we all agree is required uh, to get ourselves back to being a first world country. Mm. There's, there's a couple scary, things here. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that I, that I kind of want to zoom in on a little bit. Like when a government is in charge of spending money, there's, and correct me if, if I'm wrong or if you have a different view on this especially, but it looks like there's spending and then there's investment. Spending, if they are spending money, there's probably like, not necessarily a multiplier effect going on. In other words, when they spend money, it doesn't necessarily create wealth in the economy. It kind of almost extracts wealth, not almost, I believe it does. When they invest, however, that's kind of where things actually get better. So when we look at these things like the New Zealand super fund being a, a higher proportion of government spending in the future, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Whereas when we look at health, uh, education, and even just the cost of running the government itself, which probably needs to be reined in, those are types potentially of, of not really smart government spending. I'm not saying that those things aren't good, but the way that they're going about it is sucking value out of the economy, in my view. So like, I kind of think that the pathway to fiscal responsibility is actually shrink the government. Am I being too much of a libertarian here? Uh, well, I wouldn't expect anything different from you, Darcy. Um, I, look, I think it's a real challenge, right? 
as a country, we know we've got these humongous problems. Um, we've got a healthcare system that's broken. We've got an education system that's broken. Um, we've got a very limited infrastructure. I think how you describe the difference between spending in terms of kind of the BAU ongoing expenditure, um, yeah. that has clearly ballooned and gone way too high and will need to be reined right back in. Um, but then how do we think about infrastructure and how do we think about investment? Because I think we focus on the day-to-day -day and we do, we forget about the kind of the investment infrastructure side of it. And that's where the real problem is. And so I've been pretty vocal and pretty, I think our debt to GDP limits that the politicians keep on going are, are probably too low and mm -hmm. why arbitrarily does New Zealand need to have one of the lowest debt to GDPs in the, in the world? And mm. saying that, where we've gone to over the last kind of 24 months, or sorry, three or four years, um, and kind of now running a, a deficit, um, what do we call it? So it's almost an entrenched deficit of 5 to 6% of GDP. That's just nuts. Mm. And we're never going to yeah. be able to invest unless we fix that thing. So it yeah. is really, really hard. And my personal frustration is, we're not talking about any of the real drivers. Um, we're still just in a political football field um, yeah. and, and going from there. I mean, Three Waters is a, a, the water stuff is a great example, right? Where actually the government's simply saying, we didn't like Three Waters um, because it kind of took away the control from the councils. Um, actually, if you think about what the Three Waters provision really was doing, like let's, the co-governance stuff, put that aside for a sec. Um, all it was doing was moving the cost um, from the from the councils to central government, which actually, yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad outcome because at the end of the day, the, the money needed to be spent does need to be spent, and there is no way that councils can afford to do it. So, what does that mean? We're going to end up in we're not going to spend any money in five or ten years' time. We're still going to be having all of exactly the same issues that we have today. So that, that I think is my kind of frustration. We're, we're huge amount of talk about fiscal responsibility without mm. addressing the elephants in the room and without actually coming up with the plans around how we can fix this stuff yeah. either. And ultimately it's going to mean higher debt, right? It's, it has to. And that's why I think it's kind of important for everyday people to think about this a little bit more because if the government is getting more into debt, so long as they're spending it efficiently, which is a huge caveat, then that actually could be quite good for our economy and it will be yep. fantastic for long-term growth. It does make it does make it more expensive in terms of future servicing costs on the government. And I guess there's that risk that they're now more exposed to interest rate risk, just like a household would be if they got into more debt. Yeah. They're going to be more exposed to interest rate risk. Like look at the US, the highest line item is, is their interest expense right now, but we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near 125% um, GDP ratio, right? Thankfully. But yeah, 100%. And so that's why for me, any spending that we can do on um, any spending that we can do on infrastructure, anything that we can do that boosts productivity. So that mm -hmm. means in my mind that we need to spend on the infrastructure. Public transport is a must. We just have to do it. Fucking, I mean, yeah. you live slightly out of Auckland. You're driving home every night if you if you accidentally leave at 5.30, then that's a painful yeah. exercise for you. Um, and we, we have to figure out a way to fix education. And actually, education, in my view, needs to change massively in that I think our universities have been set up to take volume 
And so we've now moving, I think we've moved to an education system which prioritizes volume over quality. And actually we should probably have half as many students going to university or a quarter or two thirds of the number of students going into the universities, but we're making it a much more competitive, much more um, a kind of orientated world, which is aimed at driving high performance. But in the gap in the slack, will be massively filled up by um, politics and alternative education institutes. Um, but yeah, I, I struggle to see the need for us to be pumping out 10, 20,000 uh, BAs, BCOMs a year, um, mm. because at the end of the day, it's just not necessary. Yeah, well, the whole world's changing, but we, we haven't changed our systems too much. And I guess then there's a, the, the defense piece as well, where we're probably gonna yeah. have to increase the spend on defense relative to our GDP significantly as well. Um, interesting stuff happening in that space as well right now uh, with AUKUS and the relationship that New Zealand has with our security partners, walking that tightrope between not offending our biggest trading partner. Um, in fact, while we're, while we're on the topic of our biggest trading partner, China, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the yeah. economy and then maybe come back to, to New Zealand in, in terms of interest rates again. But what's going on with, with, with China? It's probably <laughs> one, one of the... I guess one of the most frustrating questions to ask because you never really get the, the full story, but it does feel like there's there's a bit of funk in that trunk. You know what I mean? Like there's a bit of dark. Oh, there's a huge there. amount of funk in the trunk, right? I think yeah. the best the best description. Um, so they've got their target, I think, at five percent uh, GDP growth this year. And I heard uh, a senior UBS economist or the head economist at UBS uh, interviewed last week, and he said, "Oh, talking about China." What do you think is going to happen? Will, will China hit their 5% GDP growth? And his answer was awesome. It was the official statistics will say they hit their 5% GDP growth. We've yeah. got no idea what they'll actually do, though. So, yeah. look, I think China, a very opaque box. No one's really sure on kind of exactly what's happening there. But the two big things that are kind of really striking that economy, one is housing market. So the housing market has been on a, on a massive downturn for the last little wee while. Um, as and that's been driven by the fact that there was massive overbuilding um, over the last 10, 15 years, driven by easy money, um, kind of a lot of the provincial areas just giving away land um, or and a lot of the corruption, et cetera, which drove and incentivized more development. Um, and so now all of a sudden you've got a country which is already largely urbanized. Um, mm. So you've kind of already seen that transition from rural to urban um, and now you've got shrinking population and so how do you kind of get all of this stuff back on track and and how do you fill up those houses the complete mm. opposite from new zealand uh where actually they've, they've probably got too many houses that they've already built um mm. and they're now going to need to focus on immigration to fill that gap whereas new zealand we've got nowhere near enough houses but we've still got more immigration than we've ever had before so somewhere mm. in the middle of those two would be the right answer yeah so what has that done we should do a deal. We should do a deal with China and just say, hey, oh, exactly. move some of your yeah, houses. Well, well, you take some of our people and uh, we'll take some of your houses. Um, yeah. So the, the truth is, so what, what does that mean in China? So that means now we've had the real estate market's gone, gone bust. People are feeling poorer, which means they're spending a hell of a lot less. Um, we have seen, the recently we've seen the bankruptcy of a whole series of the large real estate firms. Um, and that's kind of something that was previously thought of as, as un, undoable. We've had the kind of the stock market now sitting at a five-year low. Um, and so it's really kind of just really been in a massive funk as well. And so 
as a as an economy, as a country, there's clearly massive nervousness in the Chinese um, in the Chinese political sphere around this, because at the end of the day, the China model has always been around. We will continue. The Chinese Communist Party's number one promise is we'll continue to make you better off, and we'll continue to increase prosperity. Yes. Um, and up until now, the government's been really reluctant to step in because they they acknowledge that a lot of these problems have been created by way too much cheap money and way too much government support in the past. And mm. so therefore they're like, well, we kind of just need to get the economy back to a normal right-sizing world. Um, and actually if we step in and if we assist on the way through, then that's going to make life pretty difficult. So it is a, it's a really tough one. No one's quite sure on where it goes and, and where it goes next. Um, You've also got the, the geopolitical stuff, which overlay on top of it, which I think is probably slightly under-talked about, um, where the, the US tariffs, uh, they're a bit of an aversion to a lot of the um, buying US goods. It means Chinese-made goods in the US um, and in parts of Europe. You are starting to see some of those technology shifts, which have, have stocks going to China, or, and you're also starting to see some of those exports slow down, which unfortunately is going to impact um, the broader kind of uh, economy as well so pretty scary place right now um from an economic perspective markets though i mean look as an investor i guess do you do you align with the warren buffett quote of be brave when everyone is scared and be scared when everyone is brave um because at the moment the the chinese market has never traded at such a big discount to yeah. uh the us and other global markets part of that's yeah. because the us market is also trading at all-time highs in terms of valuation perspectives. But, mm. yeah, it's a, it's a really hard one. And mm. any investor over the last two years that's kind of thought, okay, the discount's good, now time to have a go, now time to put money in, um, mm. they've all been burnt. And so even in the last kind of three months, there have been about six China-focused hedge funds which have all just shut up shop saying, fuck, we can't do this anymore because we're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, just... It's it's a weird it's a weird one though when you look at all the indicators out there like say volatility as one volatility at all time lows indicates that there's a lot of money still moving around the system and everything actually looks really good so when we say that things are a little bit scary right now the world is a bit scary because of geopolitical risks um, the China issue uh, commercial real estate which maybe we can come come to next it it's we have to kind of benchmark that against something yeah. right because we've just come out of three years of a whole lot of crazy so. How is this really dangerous? And is this kind of just maybe this is the new normal, Rupert? Like maybe we just need to get over it, or maybe we just need to be a um, a long term investor and and be entertained by this, but don't be influenced by it. Yeah, look, I, and I think that's the honest truth, right? Over the last two years, three years, there's been a consistent call betting against the market, betting against um, kind of continued growth, and and everyone's been consistently wrong and. That's why investors like us, as a passive investor, we've done so well recently because we just stayed invested um, and we've kind of, we, we've managed to run with that on the way through. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it is a really, really tough one. Um, I think uh, there are, but they do feel right now there are some pretty big, scary risks in the market. I think mm -hmm. some of the stuff that I've been reading though, my big question back is saying, well, actually, is the last 20 years the abnormality? <laughs> and so 
what is normal if you go back so the last 20 years has probably been one of um the calmest quietest periods um in the last kind of 150 200 years right where we go you've had a single large global superpower you haven't had anything there right and so yeah part of me does wonder whether we're actually just going back to the old world um versus actually something new I have a lot of theories on that one. But yeah, I'd, I'd say hey, it's probably been, <laughs> since 2008, right? We've been on life support. That's why it feels oh. like it's kind of the new norm. Oh, but, but it's it, also but, but, curve. Would, And that's why the interest rate conversation I find really interesting, right? Because you're mm. sitting there going, in 2007, we were saying 6% was neutral interest rate. Um, mm. So 2007, I remember kind of sitting through an economics briefing and they said, oh, OCR is now kind of 6%. We expect a slight dip over the next kind of 12 months and then but soft landing and then we're going to reaccelerate through it all and one of the issues is that interest rates might go up to eight or nine percent we're now sitting there going five percent kind of base rate and going this is way too high and this is restrictive yet we know if we look back over a kind of a hundred year timeline actually five six percent is about where the average sits and so yeah there's a there's a whole lot i think we we spent too long referencing the last 15 years, 20 years, expecting that that's right. normal um, versus looking further back, right? So it's interest rates, mm. it's economics, yeah. it's um, geopolitical. We, yeah. we have been in a really interesting time, in my view. Yeah. yeah. I think we're in an exponential time, though, as well, which means that we yep. can't really look backwards linearly. So that's the counterbalance to that as well. Man, we could talk all day on this one. Let's keep moving, though. Um, <laughs> let's talk about commercial real estate. And this is something maybe we yep. should major on a little bit more when on another show uh but the the reality is is that there's a lot of debt that exists yeah. out in the world and a lot of that debt is used to buy stuff and a lot of the stuff that has been used to to buy what is commercial real estate work from home during the pandemic that changed the dynamics now that interest rates are higher vacancy rates are lower you have more distressed tenants uh, risk of default rising or defaults are rising which Kind of puts stress not just on the, the the specific situations but the system itself and last year we saw some bank failures and i just wonder if this could be another manifestation of some of the systemic risk that maybe commercial real estate's going bad would be i guess a catalyst in some way um do you feel like the the commercial real estate issue or risk is is, is, is not really too much of a concern or do you, do you think that could be a factor? Oh, look, I think it's, um, I do think it's, it is a concern is you kind of have to, have to assume that. Um, I mean, like it's really interesting, right? You talk to the commercial, even here in New Zealand, you talk to the commercial real estate guys here and they just say that the transaction volumes are really, really, really slow. Um, and that's because there's still this massive mismatch of where, um, where, Owners of properties see value versus where buyers see property, right? And you go five years ago, or no, sorry, three years ago, you're looking at a 10-year rate of kind of two and a half, three percent 3%. Today, you're looking at a 10-year rate of four and a half, five percent 5%. I mean, when you're buying assets on yield, that has to do a massive job on your valuations. It's just no question on it. So I actually think the commercial property conversation is as much about the impact of interest rates on that sector because it is a sector which is kind of 50% LTV, quite high levels of kind of um, quite high levels of um, 
of gearing. And so you go, and it's actually, to my mind, the interest rate move alone should be pushing values down 20, 30%. And then you come back to the part that you're talking about, which is actually the vacancy rate. And so in the US, uh, average vac office vacancy rate's now gone to 17%. In some big cities, it's now up to 20%. Um, whereas historically, it's kind of been in that 5 to kind of 7%. So there are a whole lot of issues there. The, the big question, which I think we all need to think about, is it big enough to create systemic risk? Um, or can it be managed within some of the, the current kind of banking environment? Yeah. Okay. Cause it, yeah, again, th this is a massive discussion, right? But I just think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of reasons why interest rates are high right now. Yeah. And the battle against inflation is, is the one that we're, we're always kind of saturated in, but it's not just about that, especially when you no. overlaid the geopolitical piece and, yeah, man, there's just so much to go into there. So let's move move on yeah. and talk about this. Maybe in the microeconomic setting, because a lot of a lot of New Zealanders, a lot of Kiwis will have uh, property wealth as the largest share yeah. of wealth in their own portfolio, whether it's a portfolio of rentals or it's equity in their own home. It's still wealth, and if they have mortgage debt, then the value of that wealth is interest rate sensitive as well. Interest rates go up, property values go down, generally speaking, and the inverse is true. So if you're a borrower, one of the, one of the biggest things that you're likely considering over time is this question of will interest rates go higher or will they go lower in the time frame that we're yeah. looking at? And I think a lot of Kiwis focus on picking up pennies when they should be looking at the steamroller. In other words, they're speculating with their mortgage based uh, instead of actually managing the risk. And I think this is the environment where you either see that strategy of speculation pay off or the risk management strategy pay off. And it was, it, it was interesting that like you, you mentioned an article that the ASB CEO, Vittoria Short, um, mentioned this as well, that you know, we kind of need to start thinking more about this as a risk management exercise. I don't know how big your mortgage is, Rupert, relative to, to, to your overall portfolio, but for me, it's, it's a significant consideration. Um, yeah. What are your general thoughts, though, just in terms of the strategy that borrowers might want to consider? Oh, look, um, I, I think, Victoria, I thought it was a really interesting article because it was one of the first articles that had talked about, hold on a sec, um, we need to bring this back to risk. So, like, the way... When I first took out my mortgage, uh, we actually locked it in for uh, five years because I took the view that at 5%, I could afford it. At 6.5%, mm. I couldn't afford it um, because we'd pushed ourselves pretty hard on that mortgage. I think, and that's the, the big issue that we have, right? So coming back to what I said earlier about actually long-term interest rates are about where we are now, um, if not kind of slightly higher than where we are now. And I think where we're kind of our minds are very influenced by what's happened over the last kind of two to five or probably even the last 10 years, to be perfectly honest. And so what does that mean? That means it could go the other way. And Victoria's article was saying, look, they're seeing people fixing for shorter and shorter and shorter on mm. the kind of almost the guarantee, expecting the guarantee that interest rates will come down. Mm. Um, but people do need to think pretty hard about, well, what happens if they go the other way? Um, yeah. Because, hey, investing, um, managing your finances, in my view, it's all about risk management. 
and prepare mm. for the worst and hope for the best is kind of the way I look at everything. So mm. can be a little bit pessimistic sometimes, but that is what it is. Um, mm. And what does that mean, right? That means if you do have a mortgage, you probably shouldn't be kind of banking on um, interest rates coming down in the kind of next little wee while. But it's all about risk management, right? And you as a, mm. as a mortgage advisor, you'd be far better at that than me, but everyone talks about laddering and all of those kind of things. So you, mm. but it's all about, to my mind, where it starts, figuring out what you can afford and protecting yourself at that level. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's a good, it brings us back to the start of this conversation, fiscal responsibility. That's yeah. ultimately what it is. You need to make sure there's enough fuel in the tank to get to your destination and I think regardless of what the strategy is that you employ, you, you should be thinking about your household budget first and then the environment that we're heading into. And so it is like, a, it's a fascinating area to explore because when you look at the, I would even go back 40 years, are we going to see a continuation of lower highs and lower lows in, in terms of each interest rate cycle? Or are we seeing a a tilt where there's a change in this long-term secular trend and we're going to see higher highs and higher lows with the next interest rate cycle. And maybe what we're at right now is kind of the low. We don't know that for sure. But when we think about how much money the government needs to borrow for things like infrastructure, defense, healthcare, and education, we know that there's probably going to be more demand for credit. And if there's more demand for something, then yeah. logically the price goes up. The price is the interest rate. So the question becomes, in my mind, well, is there going to be a non-homogenous interest rate market, let's call it that, where government can borrow at cheap rates, but you and me as mortgage holders, we actually have to suck it up and pay higher interest rates, kind of like a subsidy. It's a fascinating sort of area, though, isn't it? Uh, look, it is. And it, you've raised a really good point, right? We're, we're, and I think we talk about New Zealand debt to GDP at a government level, but actually at a totality level. And you are 100% right. There is There are only so many people willing to lend into the New Zealand market and lend in New Zealand dollars, um, and that can only go for so long. And so it, it is a bit of concern. I know one of the bank's biggest concerns is always, can they get the wholesale funding they need to kind of yeah. um, to continue writing the, the business that they are expected to write? So yeah. It is there, right? Um, yeah. It is concerning. And I think ANZ put the shot over the bow two or three weeks ago with yeah. the fact that they see interest rates going back up. Um, uh, I think people would be wise. You don't necessarily need to believe that, um, but you need to be prepared for it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, risk will define it as uncertainty, right? And, and just, I guess, the main thing to leave it on is that where there's uncertainty, where there's risk, there's return. And I still I fundamentally believe that owning property, owning shares, it's going to be very good in the long run. And dare I say, even more goodness in the future um, with severe volatility on the way, no doubt. But the risk that we see today or the uncertainty that we see today around what return we're going to get, I think that is just, that's the entry fee that we just have to pay, right? So it is what it is. But that's, that's yeah. good. Maybe we should finish up on that one, uh, Rupert. We've gone a little bit over time today, but um, good, good discussion starting in New Zealand. Great discussion. Way to go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Darcy. And um, we will have a great week and we'll speak next week. Sounds good. See you then.